it was kind of surreal. I was there just after the earthquake. You have all the aftershocks. And I could see all the chaos and destruction. Why I should continue to live if all this have to happen to me? Bienvenue, or welcome. I'm your host, Leslie Friday. Thank you for listening to Voices of Haiti, a Partners in Health podcast that shares the stories of our Haitian colleagues as they reflect on the January 12, 2010 earthquake. Today, we hear from Dr. Patrick Ulysse, the Chief Operating Officer for Partners in Health. Before this role, Patrick was the Executive Director of PIH in Liberia, where he helped rebuild the country's health system after Ebola. But even before that, he worked in his home country of Haiti with Zamila Sante, as PIH is known locally. I started with Zamila Sante now maybe 14 years ago when I started as a general practitioner. I was managing the program of HIV and TB patient at Petite Rivière which is a Zamila Sante Health Center. This health center is a community of about 130,000 people, which is in the Atibonit region, in the northeast of the country. Zamila Sante primarily works in two regions within Haiti, the Central Plateau and the Lower Artibonite. In 2010, the facility where Patrick worked in Petite Riviere was modest, but he and his team had worked over time to equip it with the right staff, stuff, and space to meet patients' needs. It's a health center with a few inpatient beds, having the capacity um, to do cesarean section um, because we, we built a operating room at this time because the health center used to receive um, more than 2,000 women coming to having self-delivery of their baby. Usually you got like 40% of those women would need a C-section. Um, and we decided to have this operating room at this time. And outside of that, where we used to see patients with HIV, we tried to provide like drug, make the RV available for them, provide them full um, social support, um, and also supporting their kids. And keep continuing to provide basic services like for child, for adult. That was a kind of classic and normal activity we used to do at Pittsburgh at this time, before the earthquake. Before the earthquake. Before the earthquake, Patrick led the medical team at a health center that did normal activities, prenatal care and deliveries, well-child visits, outpatient services, and even specialty care for patients suffering from TB or living with HIV. But all sense of normalcy evaporated with the earthquake. This afternoon of January 12th is still clear in my head um, where I was in a meeting with a group of um, health center staff and different partners. We were working and discussed um, about a plan for a malnutrition program. Um, And I remember that none of us um, understand what's going on. And when we got the first um, tremors, like shaking, and, and everybody feel like, did, did you feel what I feel, or it's in my head, or this thing happened? But we didn't know clearly this is the earthquake. And what we did, we say, okay, seeing the 
the glass of water shaking on the table. We say, okay, let's leave the place. Let's continue the meeting outside in the courtyard. And that's what happened. And a few minutes after, I think, we heard from a small radio with someone. Um, it was the security guard um, there. And we heard, like, the capital has collapsed. Um, the palace has collapsed. Um, people are dying. And I think that was the end of the meeting. And that was the end of everything. The work changed. I think that was the time I say life changed, everything changed. That's why exactly I remember this afternoon of the 12th. I think one of the first things we did, we tried to call um, other colleagues in the capital. And when we see the phone um, cannot going to, um, now the first thing I did, I call everybody from the staff, like the security guard, the nurse, the doctors, the volunteer at this time, everybody. And I remember we say, I'm trying, we're trying to reach out people to the capital. We cannot reach out to them. This is the information we got about the, the palace and everything is kind of collapsed in the capital. We don't know <laughs> what to do clearly, but let's imagine or let's figure out what we'll do if we start receiving injury patients here. Um, and I recall again um, what the nursing director at this time say. He say, remember it's not about like your job title, like you are a physician, you are a nurse, or you are who you are, or security guard. It's not about that. If needed, you as a doctor, you may need to clean the floor. And use as a security guard, you didn't you maybe need to support like the triage of patient. We really need to be one to to try to face that. That was the plan we put in place at this moment. Because they all needed a plan desperately right then, a next step. Inaction wasn't an option. But how do you know what to do in that heartbeat after disaster? When the world as you'd known it just flipped upside down. And I think this is the feeling sometimes you feel you want someone to tell you what to do. <laughs> you expect, hey, tell me what to do because I don't know what to do. And, but what we was agree, we say like, we need to go to the capital. Um, we don't know what's going on. If we cannot have an information, we need to go. And it was like 2 a.m., like, kind of day before, like we spent the afternoon talking, trying to figure out what to do. Um, when I took a car and a driver with a first um, head kids, like to to start the journey to port And as we approached to port we, it was kind of surreal. It, like, I could see it, but you could not imagine like that's real what I what what you saw, and all the wood was like nearly like impossible. You cannot cross it because you got a lot of debris, you got a lot of body everywhere, and and you meet a lot of people like with car or walking on motorbike, try to continue to travel from the capital to the north, um, seeking for care and. We keep sharing all the painkiller we have 
with us, like for people, and let them keep continue to go. We continue away to the capital. I think, yeah, that that's the only thing we think we could do at this time. Before he left for that first trip to Port-au-Prince, Patrick and his team tried to think about what he would need to respond to survivors along the way, and they packed and packed as many things as they could into his vehicle, knowing that it would never be enough. We start doing the basic thing, like things you need for, um, uh, like painkiller, like bandage, those kind. And again, I remember the nursing director at this time say, oh, take some water, <laughs> bring some bread, let's pick some food, we never know. It was funny, like, and we are to the ambulance, he said, like, go with it. And I don't think we, we reached Port-au-Prince with some of the drugs or painkiller, but the water, the food was gone, like, on the way because we started doing the distribution, things like that. The magnitude of need only grew as he got closer to Port-au-Prince. Ultimately, he wished he'd brought more of everything, but he especially wished he hadn't gone alone. Maybe more than one ambulance. I wish I got more than one ambulance on our way to Port-au-Prince, yeah. Patrick and his driver made their slow journey back to Port-au-Prince with regular stops to provide aid and assistance. A trip that would have taken an hour and a half on a normal day took four to five hours that morning. It was like you got the traffic, but the traffic is not because you have a lot of car or a lot of like people and the world wasn't um, like a lot of body and, and debris at this time. The city was chaos, like landmarks, street and building did not exist like the way they used to. Um, when we arrive, we start, we cannot contact people. And we say the first thing we have to do is like, let's go to the general hospital. We, at this time, was the largest public hospital um, to the country. We say, let's go there because maybe people will send people. Well, let's go there. Um, when we reached there, we could not enter. To the hospital because the driveway was full of people on the floor and and people with broken leg and with a lot of dead people also on the driveway and I could say for more than three days what we did is go there spend some time help the team to moving like dead body, separate dead body to people alive, take people to the car and move with them to the north and do the distribution for any hospital you can find on your way. <laughs> At this time, maybe one or two. And keep continuing to move with them to particular. In those first chaotic hours, Patrick made multiple trips transporting patients from Port-au-Prince to the interior of the country, transferring them to any hospital that was open and could give them care, including Petite Riviere. He worked tirelessly, as if part machine. He was on autopilot. Until the day he wasn't. I think that was day two, like two days after the earthquake. Um, when 
going back and forth to the General Hospital to Petit Rivière. And I went back to General Hospital to pick up patient. And I met someone say to me, hey, um, do you know Honoré is there? And I say, what? Say, yeah, Honoré is there. You can move and you will see him. And Honoré was my colleague, but he was my colleague. And he is a physician. We do our training together. And, and I saw him lay on the floor. Patrick met his friend Anoué in medical school in Haiti. It was the first time he saw someone he knew. And suddenly, something shifted in how he viewed the tragedy in front of him. Both of his arm was broken with one leg also. And I feel like until that moment, I've been moving like so quickly. I wasn't feeling it was will. It was like, yeah, it was like something so will you just have to move. And when I saw him, I feel like I came over to the reality to say, wait a minute. Onoe should be with me moving and pick up patient to, to go there. Now it's on the floor between other people who are suffering and dead body. That's bring me back to say, okay. And what's shocking me, I say, okay, Onoe, we have some painkiller, like, like take them. And it was clear when he said, you know, like, um, give it to other people because I'm going with you. Start doing that. And I say, okay. I feel like at some point he was the one to tell me what to do. Okay. And I start giving. And I say, okay, let's go. And he say, okay, take those people also with you, Patrick. I say, do you know them? I say, no, but I don't think they have any choice. Just go with them. Honoré um, had been with his fiancée and his brother when the earthquake happened. And when I saw Honoré like, moving to back to the hospital, he kept asking, like, do you see my brother? Do you know where is my fiancée? And I think the next day we find his brother and, and we got the information, like, his fiance died um, from the earthquake. Um, I think it took me like two or three days to tell him that because I didn't know how to tell him like, hey, this is this is what happened when I when when I know what he's going to, when I know the way he was suffering. I don't feel at this time I heard Onoe as a physician. Onoe was the one who was suffering. He was the one who had breaking leg, breaking hand, arms. He was the one who lost his partners. But he was the one who kept telling us, oh, we have hope. We, we need to keep pushing. I think when you see those kind of things that give you more energy to continue to do more. 
tune in next week to hear the rest of Patrick's story and how he and Zami Lasante went on to manage four camps for the displaced in Port-au-Prince. Continue to learn and explore more stories about Zami Lasante and PIH by visiting pih.org backslash Haiti. Follow Voices of Haiti on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcast and now on Google Podcast. Also rate us, let us know how we're doing. And look for us at Partners in Health on Instagram or at PIH on Twitter and DM us with any comments or questions. As always, thank you for listening, and we look forward to sharing the rest of Patrick's story next week.